and it's the place to be, huh? Yep. Test, test, test. We're good. Thanks. Anyway, thank you. Uh, we'll get started now. And this is the uh, series Careers in Global Development. And with me today is Susan Reichley, um, who I think if you've seen her, her bio or the, uh, the announcement, uh, she is now the President and Chief Operating Officer of the International Youth Foundation, but spent about 25 years in USAID um, at a variety of different, different positions. I think you were in Nicaragua, Haiti, mm -hmm. early. Mm -hmm. uh, you were the aid director in Russia. Yep. Aid director in Colombia, head of the <laughs> Dacha Bureau, head of the Policy Bureau, and your last position was counselor uh, to the agency, which is the most senior foreign service officer in the agency. And a short time ago, left and joined the International Youth Foundation. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. she's going to talk a bit about her career and uh, the the changes in it, and and uh, how you. Uh, if you're interested in that sort of a career, how to approach it, and that sort of thing. So with that introduction, I'll turn it over to Susan. Well, thank you. Thank you, Ambassador Gardner. It's a pleasure to be here with all of you this morning, and I, I appreciate the invitation. We've been trying to do this for a while, and it, it just worked out on the coldest morning uh, in Washington in some time. So really appreciate all of you who uh, came out in the cold to have, a, I'm sure, a great discussion. Not really so much about me, but I'd love to hear about you and your interests as, as we uh, go on. And, and I know uh, this is as well being recorded, so hopefully useful to others, because I feel so much um, uh, my, uh, you know, uh, my uh, opportunity now is to share a bit about where I've been, you know, in my, my path. But as I say to everybody, my path is not necessarily your path, but hopefully just uh, sharing a bit of what I learned over, you know, uh, my years in first seeking out a career in international development and then uh, being so fortunate. Uh, to have my time at USAID and now at IYF, but while at USAID and stay to work with mm -hmm. people like Ambassador Garbalik. So it's great to be here. So just a bit about me and um, and my path and, and how I got into it and, um, and some of the uh, unusual uh, right paths we all lead. I uh, grew up in Philadelphia, and uh, my father was a, a high school history teacher. My mother was a nurse, had never left the country. Um, and when I was about 17 years old, my mother finally won the argument that, um, you know, I just want to go to Europe once in my lifetime. I just want to get leave the United States once, right? Because I grew up basically camping and in the back uh, roads all over the U.S. My dad being a history teacher, it was all about teaching us, my sister and I, history, American history. Um, but he also taught world cultures. And so he obviously knew the value of, um, of traveling. And so um, the first trip when I was 17 was actually at a time when you're a teenager. And the last thing you really want to do is spend, um, you know, 10 days in 
tight quarters constantly uh, with my other teenage sister. We tried to figure out how we could get out of this trip that my mom was dreaming about of basically doing, uh, you know, about five countries in Europe in a very short period of time. Um, but off we went, and I have to say that ignited um, a curiosity in me that I really had not had um, before. As much as I enjoyed our travel around the U.S., all of a sudden being in other cultures, meeting my family in Germany, using my very bad high school German, <laughs> and my dad chastising us uh, on that. But it ignited this curiosity about the world. And you have to remember, just to date myself, this is during the Cold War, right? So this is when you know we were really living in a very different time in some ways uh, than we're yes. living today. Maybe not so much, um, <laughs> but very different in the sense of really, you know, the having grown up during the Cold War that you know went on for 50 years and bipolar superpowers and whatnot. All of a sudden, being in Europe, going to Berlin, going to East Berlin, and really seeing and meeting family and and whatnot. So um, after having tried to get out of that trip, it sparked this. I want to do. I want to be over there. I want to be understanding the world a lot better. Not knowing what that meant, um, I went off to college and um, played high school uh, field hockey and lacrosse, which put me through college, and went down uh, to a school I had never heard about, um, and ended up going on a whim for the weekend uh, to James Madison University. I didn't even go with my parents, and I came back from a fun weekend there, and I said, that's where I want to go to school. It's beautiful. It's, it's totally different from, I was going to stay in Pennsylvania and go to Dickinson, where my whole family had gone. Um, and all of a sudden, I was there in a very different environment um, and studying German and, uh, and international relations, which was kind of a new thing back then in uh, the 1980s. And I thought, OK, I want to go into the Foreign Service. That's what I want to do. So I went into my career uh, counselor, as much as it was, uh, to look at the data. And this was 1986. Do you know how many women were in the Foreign Service in 1986? Anyone want to take a guess? So it was higher than that. A little bit higher than that. It was, yes, exactly. And I remember walking out of, out of the career council. I can remember it like yesterday, walking out of there and saying, I'm never going to be able to do it. I'm never going to be part of that. I mean, you know, percentage. And also, a lot of the things, you know, there it was like you go to the Georgetown Foreign Service School, very different. That was really the only opportunity. It's not like having so many different programs and schools today. Um, but I still was like, I want to do something in this field. So um, it's kind of a long story, but I was able to, uh, because of my car being uh, stolen, broken into, get $2,000 in insurance money. So uh, when I graduated from uh, college, I said, I'm going to Germany. I'm going to really learn German. I really want to understand the German perspective on World War II. It was the center of the Cold War. The Cold War was still going on. Um, and it was just purely out of curiosity. I call these my wandering years, my early 20s, of just sort of you know, spending a year there studying, working. So when I talk to young people today, and they say, well, I tried this but I really didn't like it. And I said, that's okay. That's a really good investment of time. Because what I found when I went to Germany, I'm like, I don't really want to be in this environment. I'm, I'm not, I want to do something productive. I want to feel like, because I was still sort of more in the academic mode. I wasn't sure what I was going to do. So then I came back and said, okay, I'm going to go to law school. Well, I better work in a law firm. Well, guess what? I worked in a big law firm just down the street here, uh, 21st and now. And I knew in the first couple months, I didn't want to be a lawyer. 
broke my dad's heart. Uh, luckily, I married a lawyer later on. <laughs> so we had one lawyer in the family, and uh, now we uh, 20. We were saying we're almost 30 years now. Um, but I, my, my point was trying things, right? Trying things and figuring out. But what I discovered when I was at the law firm, uh, they had a lot of pro bono work working on a case called Ayuda vs. Mies. Ed Mies was the attorney general at the time. Ayuda was a group of Latin American, well, mainly uh, Latino immigrants who came, coming in. And I did pro bono work. I was working day and night pro bono work, which means the firm made nothing, right? And my partner I was working for, a great guy, he said, you know what, you're not destined for law school. Um, you're destined for a career working with that population. You need to think about it. So I went off, applied to grad school, um, still not really sure what I was going to do, uh, went to Penn, and luckily Penn had a program, even though I was in a PhD political science, because this is how lost I was in my early 20s. And I, I really share this genuinely jumping from thing to thing and I was fortunate at Penn that when again I went I said I don't want to be at this point my mother became a professor at Temple University and uh, I said I don't want to be a professor I don't want to go this academic route they had an international development program which is now part of the Wharton School and they had the Fells Center of Government and it was like all of a sudden the stars aligned and uh, one of the professors I ended up working with in that dual program said, you should do an internship in Washington, D.C. At this point, I'm about 24 years so oh, of 25. So those were the wandering years. And I, my first internship in Washington um, with, in between grad school years was with USAID. And I fell in love. I just, I, I, it was the best summer. I worked with amazing people who are legends. It was Peter Kim's Office of Housing and Urban Development. And he recruited some of the, I don't know how I got in there. It was the professor who obviously got me in there. But they were the legends. And that summer learning, and when people um, in the summers, particularly at USAID, people come in from overseas because they're you know, transferring between countries. They're, so they'd always come through and everybody would give talks like this and they'd talk about what they were doing you know, in Ghana, in Honduras, and whatever country it was. And it just, uh, I said, that's what I want to do. So all of a sudden, finally, I'm 25 years old and I feel like I want to, I now really know what I want to do. And I feel like it's, it's something I can possibly aim for. Um, but again, remember that statistic? Not a whole lot of us, right? Um, so, while I was doing well, I still had to, um, you know, thing that thing, yeah, yeah. How, to, how to beat that 7%, right? How to get above that. And uh, so fortunately in 1991, as I was graduating, and I applied through the Presidential Management Fellow Program, which exists today, so if you don't know about it, it's an awesome program, recruits everyone mm -hmm. across government, uh, or across uh, the country into government. Uh, I was fortunate to get that fellowship, but then getting into USAID. I didn't want to go to state. I mean, just to be clear, I really wanted to do development. I really wanted to work with that population. And I was very, um, I, I, you know, just lucky. I think so much of it is luck. And uh, looked around uh, the table on the day I finally made it through the last interview, and the, finally the six of us, they selected six of us, looked around the table. Guess what? All six of us were women. And we all looked at each other. We said, we know why we're here. Well, I didn't really know. I knew like we had overcome a pretty big hurdle. But what I didn't know until many years later is that there had been a lawsuit 
um, by uh, Virginia Palmer. Yeah. From 1971, uh, she was an African specialist. She was an amazing uh, scholar and understood Africa back, yep. you know, very well, uh, was in the State Department Foreign Service, but she was assigned to basically um, uh, take care of the ambassador's wife and be her scheduling secretary. So she, um, she eventually, she sued the State Department. Right. That case was not settled till 1990. Remember, I joined in 91. I'm a Palmer baby, as we like to say, right? Because what happened was the courts eventually ruled that not, it, it became a class action suit, I believe. Um, but what the courts eventually ruled is that we were not having the best foreign policy that we could have if we were denying half of the population from really having a fair entrance into the Foreign Service. So I feel very um, grateful uh, for that and, and so many other people. But one of the things we recognized as we sat around the table, the six of us on that first day, is we had to prove we were worthy of being there. Um, and I think any of you who have gone through any type of um, situation where you've been in the minority and you know you are there at the table, maybe because of that minority status, then you've got to actually work twice as hard to prove that you're worthy of being there. And, uh, and that group became our support group, the six of us. Uh, and we all didn't go into the Foreign Service, only a couple of us did as a matter of fact. Um, so you never forget the day you joined. Mine was September 22nd, 1991. Um, any Haitian scholars know what happened September 30th, 1991? You, you remember every disaster and crisis probably. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it was um, one of the many, but a really horrific coup in Haiti um, on September 30th, 1991, where Jean-Bertrand Aristide had been overthrown by a uh, military dictatorship. Uh, Raul Cedrus and some pretty horrific things happen. And so, what do they what do they need? Um, you know, whenever a crisis occurs, you need a team to go out. You need a team. You need volunteers. Right. And here, when I was assigned um, as a PMF initially, uh, I was assigned to Latin America Bureau and the Caribbean desk. And my parents were relieved. They thought, oh, thank God. What trouble can she get in in the Caribbean? We like to cruise. Maybe she'll get Jamaica. Maybe she'll, you know. Well, all of a sudden, I'm a week in, and they're saying, you know, OK, working on the crisis. And then eventually, they need volunteers to go in. And I'm raising my hand. And they're like, do you speak French? No. Do you speak Creole? No. Have you ever been to the Caribbean? No. <laughs> but I, I was able to get down there pretty quickly as people were being evacuated out. And that was the next four years. And my lesson from that is um, you know, when you see an opportunity, one thing about development, you'll never know where the opportunities are. I mean, I couldn't have known, obviously, working on the Caribbean, that a country was going to blow up that I didn't have any background in. Uh, but I'd spend the next four years of my life working on it and loving it and just really um, doing everything from what, you know, Bill is the expert on humanitarian assistance, you know, food aid delivery. This is at a time. Uh, where there was a huge embargo, uh, which meant that nothing could really get in except for humanitarian assistance. And uh, we had to travel over land uh, with our own petrol on top of our, our you know, land or four-wheel drive. And uh, the woman I went out with smoked. So whenever uh, I'd say, you got to go over there under that tree before the whole car blows up. So just amazing experiences of really getting out of out and seeing the country. And that was when I was like, I really want this career. I want it really badly. 
And uh, then fortunately, as in a time like this where we have a hiring freeze in the U.S. government, or at least with USAID and State Department, there was a hiring freeze then. And remember, it was the start of the Clinton administration. Every administration, they start with a hiring freeze. And I was about to walk out the door because I thought, well, I'll go work for a nonprofit because if I can't be overseas, I don't want to stay in Washington. And uh, just as I was about to make that decision, uh, one of my mentors uh, still today was walking down the hall of the State Department. He said, no, 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 Susan, and put his big arm. That, this, this hiring freeze is going to end. It's true with every administration. So if you're passionate about it, you love AID, we love you, so stick with it. And I stuck with it and eventually was able to, uh, when the hiring freeze was lifted, to get in. So that's one of my messages to all of you. It will be. I, when I started in 1979, yeah. there was a hiring freeze. I came in as an auditor. <laughs> <laughs> See, exactly. That's, but that was the end of an administration. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. So, but eventually hiring freezes lift, right, Bill? Yeah. So, yeah. so that is another, you know, just sort of second lesson, stick with it if you, you really want a career, particularly in the Foreign Service or in, in government. Um, then I went off to Nicaragua, um, and this was uh, right after I got married uh, to the lawyer who I told you <laughs> I met, and uh, we can talk also what it's like to have a dual career and be in the Foreign Service. And this was also back in the day where we did have more choice to like go and visit posts. So I visited uh, Nicaragua, and I visited Bolivia. That was the other country we were looking at. And Bolivia was really at its peak of development and really making some big changes. Uh, Nicaragua was going through a really tough time after the wars. Um, after Haiti, it's the second poorest country at that time. You, you have a deep uh, history in Bolivia, so you know also the opportunity, the beauty yeah. of Bolivia. Nicaragua did not quite have that striking beauty. But I came home to my, uh, my betrothed, a newly married husband. I said, I described both countries, and he's like, so we're going to Bolivia. And I'm like, no, we're going to Nicaragua. They need us more, you know? And I think that's sort of, you know, you're always going to, in development, have a fork in the road moment. It seems like we have them constantly, like, should I go left or should I go right? Follow your passion. Follow your gut. I, I always say, take in a lot of advice, but don't necessarily follow that advice. Follow really what does your gut tell you and your instincts um, tell you. So had a great three years um, in Nicaragua. This was at a time, as I mentioned, it was uh, after the wars and it was uh, their first democratically elected or democratic election from one democratically elected leader, meaning President Chamorro, to their next one. So it was a pivotal election. If they didn't get through this election, there was there was real fear that they would revert in back into their long history of war. The Sandinistas and the Contras were still very active. We had our colleagues who were kidnapped, and just to give you a sense of how different it was. So I was in the democracy office, new cone, nothing, you know, people said, oh, democracy building, it's just a fad, it's not really part of development. So I'm out there, um, you know, in our office working away, and of course, electoral observations, part of that. And it's a Friday afternoon, and every Friday afternoon, we actually used to go to the field and observe the registration and how was the registration taking place because again there had to be huge registration numbers Congress Jesse Helms some of you will remember him was monitoring this closely so Friday afternoon I'm about to go uh, jump into the car leave the mission and the mission director is coming down the hall and he said uh, listen where you're going up in Inotega in the north he said Cindy was just kid kidnapped one of my colleagues you know uh, Cindy Gersoni yes. And uh, she was uh, kidnapped by the Contras, the Rey Contras, on the Rio Coco River between uh, Honduras and Nicaragua. 
And he and I said, oh my goodness, so I can't go, I guess, huh? I'm thinking security, they're not gonna let me go. And I'm all disappointed. He's like, no, no, you can go. Her husband's up there, Bob, oh, and you just need to keep him calm because if he tries to rescue kid, uh, Cindy, someone could get killed. So, uh, but I tell that story for a couple reasons. And Bob, um, right. and Bob yeah, Bob, yeah, well, so the, I did get up there and I w spent the night walking Hinatega with him and then Cindy was released two days later after negotiations by the, by the OAS. But I tell you that story because, um, you know, we look at security today and people and how much it has changed for all of us who work in development and, and uh, whether you're in the Foreign Service or where I am now in a nonprofit, you have to think about security all the time. And while we thought about it, there was a sense like that we could still really get out. Um, and that's a real hard part. And yeah. I don't know if you want to. Yeah, no, uh, I, I think we're much less we're more risk averse now. Absolutely. Than, than over time. Than Absolutely. We were. Absolutely. And uh, so a great three years in Nicaragua. Uh, they did get through an incredible election, which led to recounting. This is before hanging chads in Florida. So it was a massive, like, one month recount uh, effort that went on. Obviously, uh, Nicaragua's democracy did not progress in the way we had hoped. So a lot of lessons there I'm happy uh, to talk about, but it is a wonderful country and wonderful people, and I think ultimately that's why um, it has remained uh, peaceful through some pretty, pretty tough times. Uh, so while I was in Nicaragua, I received an email, and this is the way sort of recruiting works in the Foreign Service. It's a lot of just, you know, who do you know, who could fill, who do you think would be a good fit? And it was for someone um, who unfortunately just recently passed away and was honored here at CSIS, Janet Ballantyne. She was a legend, uh, just a legend in, the, in um, the development circles. And she was our mission director in Russia. And our paths had crossed early on in Washington uh, when she was the Nicaragua mission director and I was looking at Nicaragua. And uh, she sent me, she was a great writer. And she sent me this wonderful email, um, you know, I think it was entitled something like, come to the, the tundra, uh, you know, the Siberian tundra. And it was uh, about Russia and what it would be like to lead the democracy office in Russia at the end of the Yeltsin era. And that she thought, I really needed to consider this seriously. And it was just a wonderful email. I go home, my husband's lying in the hammock. I'm about seven months pregnant with our first child. And I'm reading him this email. And he's like, I thought we were going to stay in Latin America, big garden, you know, wherever we go, we're looking, you know, we're starting a family. And I'm like, but look at this opportunity. So guess what? After uh, six months of language training, we're off to Russia. Uh, we arrived in February 1999. Kind of like end. this weather. Yeah, kind of like this weather on steroids for 10 months of the year uh, with a one-year-old. And, um, and I learned then that uh, Russian society was not built for, like, strollers and <laughs> things like that. Not very good for the handicapped and disabled. But how could I, we pass up the opportunity to um, work in Russia? And I, little did I know uh, what that meant would mean now, um, you know, 17 years later. And to be there during the end of the Yeltsin era for the last year of Yeltsin uh, and leading the democracy office, what at that point we thought was a graduation strategy. We were really looking at, okay, um, this is time for us. The civil society had really taken hold. There were about, it went from zero civil, you know, NGOs to 80,000 civil society organizations active all over the country. The judicial system was being reformed. They had introduced jury trials. They were really, really, really making progress. 
And then Yeltsin on New Year's Eve, 1999 to 2000, announces he's stepping down and uh, essentially sig signaling that Putin would be his successor. And we all of, a new, all of a sudden knew the situation had changed dramatically. And we had known Putin. We had obviously been following him, um, had his nickname Malchik, um, which means little little guy um, in Russian. And uh, we knew very early on that this was going to be an incredibly difficult period. Uh, is probably an understatement for uh, Russian democracy and civil society. And I'm happy to talk and answer questions about that period. And we were there till 2000, and we left in the summer 2003, so about four and a half years there. Um, and having seen many of our partners um, some chased out of Russia, some um, killed. Uh, it was really just a horrific period, but uh, also, and I, I'm happy to talk about the relationship between what we were trying to signal back here to Washington about what was happening in Russia. And because uh, you got to remember, this is at a time where there were summits. There was this history where you would have summits between Russia and the United States. Um, every six months. So there was a lot of engagement. And summits meaning the presidents met, and there was a lot of high-level engagement. Um, I was starting to really doubt the impact of development and what I was doing. Uh, you got to look at my track record, right? Haiti, Nicaragua, Russia. Not seeing a lot of you know, positive results. And particularly in my field of democracy building, my husband was um, uh, worked in economic reform, writing banking legislation. I can talk to you about how he married his career with mine um, and how we married him together, really. So actually, on the economic front, uh, Russia was doing very well, uh, not so well on the democracy front, which created problems at home, because I had one view and he had a different view. But that's what you want are different views. Um, so then, I, because I was really um, uh, doubting the uh, impact of, of my work and what I could do to contribute to the development, um, I was really considering uh, taking time off, a year of leave without pay, can talk to you about sort of why and different reasons, but I, I was fortunate enough, um, and it was post-September 11th, and I didn't feel like I could step down from serving, and that was partly why I stayed in, because I, I think there were, particularly in the country, there was such a feeling of stepping up and serving, and, and that is something you feel every day when you work in the U.S. government. You're, you're, you are really serving. And so that kept me in, and I was fortunate to go to the National War College for a year. Um, and every year there's uh, about 200 students who are selected across government who spend a year at the National War College. And uh, for me, there were two of us from USAID. Um, and ironically, my colleague who was in Russia with me, we were both selected. And I think partially maybe they knew we needed a year to write, to think. And I really recommend that because development is an incredibly draining profession. You give of yourself every day. Um, some people would say it can, you can end up being martyrs to the profession. So there are times when you really do need to step back and you need to reflect and you need to take, you know, you're having amazing experiences. So having that year, um, you know, sitting in the Kennan room of the National War College, as you know, George Kennan had been there, and uh, with uh, one of my advisors who had been uh, who just recently was the ambassador of Russia, John Taft. He was at the War College at the same time. And he advised me for a year, and I wrote a paper. It was more cathartic than anything on lessons learned in democracy building in the former Soviet Union. Um, and so it, I just do recommend 
taking time at some point in your career and development if you pursue this um, to write, to reflect, to speak. Uh, after that, felt rejuvenated, wanted to stay in, spent a year at the, um, at the State Department in a newly created office uh, called SCRS. It's the Secretary's office, and Mike can tell you <laughs> lots of reflections from that period. I pretty much knew, and it was based on a paper I wrote actually at the War College, and they asked me to present it to the new head of this office uh, because it was on interagency coordination in, uh, post in conflict societies. And my premise was that um, we were really failing the, US, the American people by not having better integrated and coordinated um, uh, tools within the interagency. And, but a decision had been made at the White House, this is 2004, to put it at the State Department. So I went to present my paper to tell them why it would never work, and it was, um, we shouldn't do it. And uh, the ambassador who was in charge of the office, Carlos Pasquale, said, well, now you got to come and work for me. Um, Andrew Natsios was our administrator at the time. He said, I want you to go over and work on this, because we've got to make sure we're linked up as much as possible. Um, but I did know in the first couple months, our kids were about uh, two and five at that point, three and six, something like that. Uh, we wanted to get back overseas. So left the State Department and then went to Colombia. And uh, I'm going to start to end, wrap this up now just with, because as you saw my track record, all of a sudden going to a country like Colombia in 2005, you know, where they were just, and it, you know, people talk about Plan Colombia and the success, but the success was all about the Colombians. And the lesson learned there was that having, uh, working in a country where there's incredible political will, local ownership, at all levels of society, not just the government, the private sector, the, those who had left Colombia and were living in Miami and other parts because they had family members killed or kidnapped, they were coming back to Colombia because it was on the verge of it being a failed state. And they didn't want their country to be a failed state. And everybody collectively working incredibly hard to, to prevent that from happening and then to rebuild it. And so I was there for the years of the first demobilizations of the paramilitaries uh, groups, which were one by one, the justice and peace law, really rebuilding the fabric, helping them rebuild the fabric of their society. And um, it didn't surprise me at all when they launched the peace negotiations with the FARC and seeing that happen. So that is, um, for you all who are in development, thinking about development, there are countries out there, and I felt very privileged. You'll feel privileged to work and to live there. I always, every country you, ha you have deep, um, deep love and respect for, but when you can actually see real change happen, and the U.S. was absolutely pivotal to that, and I'm happy to talk about that. And then just wrapping it up, um, uh, wrapped up my career, as, as Bill said, in Washington, came back, um, DACHA, the Democracy, Conflict, and Humanitarian Assistance Bureau. Uh, we were waiting for our political appointees to come in. Uh, so I was the most senior person there for a year um, after Mike left. So it was great to have Mike. Uh, and then Bill was not a, only a phone call away. I think you were still in DRC or maybe yeah. just coming out. Right. Uh, so incredible support network because all of a sudden being thrown into the humanitarian assistance world, which as you heard from my background, was not my background. <laughs> so uh, working with incredible professionals like these, because to show you life is full circle, I was there in January 2010 leading the Bureau when the Haiti earthquake occurred. I hadn't been back to Haiti since 1995 and knew instantly at 5 p.m. when that ticker came across my screen, as it does with all the folks who work in HA, 7.2 magnitude earthquake just hit Port-au-Prince. My heart stopped. 
I just knew that meant hundreds of thousands of people were instantly killed, and they were, and millions of people were displaced. And uh, so having the privilege to be part of that effort and work with incredible professionals uh, like Mike and Bill and others who, you know, just who have dedicated their lives to humanitarian assistance and be part of that effort. Uh, and then work with our new administrator, Raj Shaw, uh, who had been on the job for one week and was amazing leading our agency through what President Obama called for, which was a swift integrated response, which meant if the earthquake was at 5 p.m., by later that evening, all parts of the U.S. government were descending on the Ronald Reagan building, and we were, we were basically delivering a swift, integrated response to save lives, and I'm happy to talk about that. Then led the Policy Bureau, started up the new Policy Bureau at USAID after it had been, um, the Policy Bureau function had been taken out of USAID in 2005. So we started up again in uh, 2010, and then ended my career as counselor uh, for the last three years before going to the International Youth Foundation, which has just been so much fun uh, to now be in an NGO. It's only been eight months, but I just, um, I'm really, it feels like a USAID mission to me in many ways. People who are very passionate about the mission and delivering and being close to the programs. And for me also uh, in this position, working with the private sector, which has been incredibly interesting uh, and um, illuminating. So I'm gonna stop there. I probably talked too long, but I just wanted to share a bit my path and as well as uh, just lessons, things I learned along the way and, and just happy to. Great, well this is very, up. now we're gonna open up to questions and please state who you are and your affiliation or what you're doing now so Susan knows who she's talking to. So, go ahead. Please use your microphone because this is being recorded. So, uh, this I'm Steve Wright. I am transitioning from the Department of Defense. Susan, thank you for your service. I see so many points where we had very similar experiences because I too came up during the Cold War. Had a question. Maybe I misunderstood one of the things you said back when you took uh, went to SCR and they were talking about interagency coordination yeah. and the importance of that. Did you just say your paper was saying, don't do it, it can't happen? <laughs> thank you for um, uh, that question, because I probably wasn't clear, and, and thank you for your service. Um, so, no, it was actually my paper was saying it couldn't happen at the State Department. And the reason uh, for that premise was because, it, it, for me, it was so interesting. I had been in big embassies. Russia is one of the largest embassies in the world. And you saw the role of different agencies and departments, and then when I got to the war, College, and I really saw it, particularly in a um, you know in an environment where many of these men and women were coming out of conflict zones, and they they and coming from the Defense Department, you can really understand this that a feeling of the civilian agencies were letting them down. Well, the civilian agencies we felt, and not just speaking for USAID and state, I think others who whether were working in Iraq or Afghanistan weren't resourced. Uh, you know, the, the 150 account, which guides our budget, is less than 1%. Our foreign service, I used to still tell this story because our foreign service is smaller than the military band. So how were you gonna get <laughs> the Department of Defense, who understandably, you know, is on point in these conflict environments, to listen to 
even the State Department or follow, have it housed at the State Department. I also knew that we were still pretty weak at USAID. We had a reduction in force, which basically means we fired 200 people, 200 Foreign Service officers in 1995. The impact of firing 200 Foreign Service officers um, and then not hiring for years had huge implications. And that's why what is happening today about not hiring has huge implications for the organization. So during that period, I knew state and USAID were both probably too weak to run a truly powerful, integrated um, uh, post-conflict um, you know, uh, leadership or, or play that leadership role. So my recommendation, which was probably equally wrong, um, so I admit that, but my recommendation in the paper was to put it at the NSC. And, um, and you can imagine this created a lot. And the reason at the NSC, because you want uh, essentially that level of integration to occur and to have the National Security Council sort of, you know, uh, making sure everyone is playing well in the sandbox and, and uh, they had the authority to do that. Now, what do you think is the problem with putting that proposal forward? Thank you, Mike, of course, and that was exactly the feedback I uh, got. That, that paper did not win an award at the War College. The one on uh, lessons learned on democracy building did win the Colonel Higgins Award, but that one didn't because people had lived through Oliver North, and they said you can't operationalize the NSC. And I, I do think today we still are very challenged with this same situation that we were talking about 12 years ago. Go ahead. Hi, my name is Eli Boardman, and I'm coming off um, an internship in international exchange with an NGO here. Mm -hmm. um, is this microphone on? Yeah. Okay. Um, I just had a question, if I could take it back to sort of the beginning, um, when you were working at the law firm, and you said that you were working pro bono and then sort of were prompted to take your career to development. Could you talk a little bit about maybe the feeling you had right around that time when, when the lawyer told you that you, know, you, should, you weren't cut out for law school and sort of dealing with that because I think a lot of young people, including yeah. myself, are at that period where you're sort of chasing something and right. people are able to see what may or may not be right for you and just struggling through that. Yeah, no, I, I, absolutely. I, and I, um, I tell that story a lot because I do remember that moment. I remember thinking, okay, because remember my wandering years, you're just really kind of searching and then you realize, ah, oh, this isn't a good fit. And I really thought uh, working in this law firm and working on these issues and I was enjoying uh, the pro bono work um, and I thought, well, maybe I'll go to law school and I'll do immigration law. And the, so the other part of the story I didn't tell you is uh, the partner uh, said to me, if you go the immigration law route, you're going to have a pretty tough life. Just be prepared for that. And so think about what is it you really want to do? Is it do you want to help immigrants here? Or what is it? And just talking it through with him um, a little bit. And again, you know, the expectation of the parents. I mean, my dad really wanted me to go to law school. He really didn't want me uh, to, you know, uh, uh, sort of struggle. My mother, I mentioned she was a nurse, and then she was like in grad school when I was in middle school. She uh, took seven years for her to get her PhD because she was taking care of uh, sick parents and, and rebellious teenagers like myself. So, you know, you get all these pressures sometimes from different places, and you're trying to find your way, you know? And, um, and I do remember thinking like, 
uh, and going home and saying, okay, I'm not going to do this. But I met this great guy, Steve, and he's going to law school, and who knows, and you know, many years later, obviously. But then it was trying to figure it out, because even when I decided, and I'm, I'll, I remember being at the law firm late at night and studying for the GREs. Not fun. And I just left USAID where some of the young folks were studying for the GREs at night or GMATs. And I'm not saying like graduate school or law school or MBAs. There are so many different options um, on education, and there is not one path. I think back definitely in my day, because um, international development wasn't a field. You guys have so many more options. I teach at Carnegie Mellon at night, and I a graduate program here in DC, the Heinz School. And I love it because I learn as much from them. So looking at all the options, options, but don't be afraid to say, I tried this and I don't want to do this. And remember, I applied to a PhD program because I did think, well, maybe I just got to get my PhD done. Again, it was my parents saying, you don't want to live your mother's life of struggling getting your PhD done with rebellious teenagers. So get it done now. And then all of a sudden saying, I don't want to do that. You know, So it's okay to try things and not do That's a good use of your time. Um, so that's my advice. Hello, my name is Mirgo Kunz, and I have three questions, but I probably will ask just maybe two sure. for now so that others have space as well. Thank you so much for the experience. Um, I had actual post-Soviet experience as well working in Kyrgyzstan, not oh, Russia, sure. and work with UN women on gender equality issues, but also lately um, on de-radicalization of young people, uh, focusing on young women. And I do understand how you felt thinking about what's the role of women, right? Mm -hmm. right? When the culture itself is not there for women's participation. Yes. So my question is, in addition to being um, a woman in foreign service, what other pressures did you encounter as a 20 plus year old person yeah. entering the field? Yeah. And the second one, you mentioned that um, you were able to build the foreign career service um, with, with your spouse as well, right? So how do mm -hmm. those interplay mm -hmm. things? Sure, great questions. Um, yeah, no, and I'm glad you mentioned the other aspects that were truly sort of unique to me um, uh, coming into the foreign service. I hadn't expected. I obviously was aware of the, the gender issue, um, but when I, my, when I went to uh, particularly Nicaragua um, and being young, I think at that point I was about 28 or 29 maybe by the time. I think you know, I was 29. And I was probably the youngest person in the mission. Also, one of the things that we did back then in USAID, um, we had a, the, our recruitment program was called the International Development Intern Program, uh, IDI program. But the average age of an IDI was about 40 or 41. So I was very young to be coming in even at that level. And remember, it, also the PMF program was called, it was an internship. So I went from the, my wandering years to being a PMI, uh, an intern, to being an IDI, another intern, and I'm almost 30 years old, and that's when my dad said, are you ever going to not be an intern, you know? <laughs> so um, there's also that title thing, which I'm happy to talk about. But the thing that made me, in, in Latin America in particular, is like, oh, jovencita, que linda, you know, you were just, which means, like, you beautiful, or, you know, lovely young person, and I was just constantly being called young. And Sita is like Susita, right? Yeah. You know, right? Oh, yeah. So, um, which to me was just like, 
um, I didn't know how to take that. And they didn't, and so part of it was just trying to adjust, like, it's okay, you know, it's adoring, and not to take mm -hmm. um, offense to that. But I, I was very aware of my age, and I remember, um, and now here I am, 25 years later, right, saying, I can't wait till I'm like 50. <laughs> you know, I just, or at least, I think back then I was thinking 40. I couldn't wait till I was 40 and I wasn't going to be, you know, Jovencita anymore, uh, which is, yes, very ironic, right? So don't be careful what you wish for. And thank you for, um, no, I'm loving every year. Um, you know, the other thing that I think was really uh, interesting, because it, it was a time when men didn't come as the dependent spouse. So my, as I was experiencing it uh, as a young female foreign service officer, he was experiencing it as a, um, a young male dependent spouse. And so the culture was very different back then where um, the, um, the dependents, you know, would get together. They were, you know, they were really a community. And he, you know, he was being called, also my husband and I have different last names, so all of a sudden he's being called by my last name, Mr. Reikley, and he's like, I'm not your dad, you know? Yeah. And uh, so just some cultural thing, and then I'm not gonna go to all the um, ambassador wife's teas, and I am, you know, and he, now I, I should really, pre he really wanted to do this. He wanted this career as much, uh, probably more than I did almost when I had doubts. He was the one throughout my entire career was always pushing me forward. When he finished the, law, uh, the bar exam, I think it was just like 1992 in the summer, you know, most people go to the beach, reconnect, you know, just relax. He came to Haiti. He had never been to Haiti, and he said, I got to see this country you've fallen in love with. And uh, he was able to get, actually work in a boutique uh, law firm for three months in Port-au-Prince. He did not fall in love with Haiti the way I did. Uh, that was actually a condition to getting married. He said, um, he said, you know, we could, all right, uh, definitely want this career, but let's go on to another country, right? Um, but what he did, and, and I tell this story as well, because when I became a mission director, uh, and really in senior management, what I learned from my experience was it was important to help the whole family. That's very much part of the military culture. It's not about the employee who's working for you. It is about the family. We didn't have that culture quite as much when it came to dual careers. So I was very fortunate that when we got to Nicaragua, newly married, uh, he didn't work for the first, that was not good, he didn't work for the first six months. He was fluent in Spanish. And um, I, I didn't know if it was gonna work out. And you know, obviously my marriage, my my family was more important to me than my career. And so I said to the mission director, uh, I said, listen, it's not working out for Steve. He can't find any job. He's not looking for a big law job. He, he really just wanted some job, any kind of job. And you know, the mission director said, let me talk to a couple people. And that's all it took. He talked to a couple people. The next thing you know, he was writing the environmental legislation um, in uh, Marena, which is the Ministry of Natural Resources in Nicaragua, to protect the parks. And, uh, and he was, you know, there was no electricity, so he's sweating profusely, no, you know, he's doing it by hand, he, but he's working with some of the best lawyers in Nicaragua, and he got great experience. From then on, his whole career took off. I mean, he was the chief of party, he worked in, uh, for a big project in Colombia, he worked in the, um, in the Economic Reform Office of Russia. Uh, ultimately, he decided he likes to work outside. We did explore whether we would do a dual career. He would apply to the Foreign Service, but he loves being 
being on the outside working on projects and and uh, whatnot. But I tell that story because, and I, I, so what I, the story I just told you today is what I would do with every new Foreign Service class that came in. As counselor, and during the time I was counselor, we hired about 800 Foreign Service officers in groups like this. So I would tell my story, and with the lessons, for example, of, you know, if someone in your family is suffering, don't hold it inside. Please talk to somebody because particularly us in senior management, we we probably have lived it in some way or another, either with our spouse or kids or some, and we really, it is about helping the family on this path. And that's true for international development. I'm talking about the Foreign Service, but in my new perch at IYF, I, I, I love seeing that same sense of commitment and how to help each other and families through some pretty tough times because you're working in unusual places. Development is not a nine to five job where you go to the office every day and you go home. You're working in incredibly challenging environments for you, for your family, um, crises occur and you have to be able to to feel like you have that level of support and we always did and I I've saw it change during my time at USAID where um, it really and I'm sure yeah. you saw it in your sure. embassies and whatnot yeah. so hi thank you thank you Susan I'm Catherine Wise from FHI 360 um, I wanted to hear a little bit more about how um, your recent transition to International Youth mm -hmm. Foundation and after working a lot on democracy building, what attracted you to mm -hmm. this particular NGO and its mission and what kind of work are you doing now um, yeah. at Great. your current organization? Thank you for the question because I, I realized as I was going on too long, I'm not talking enough about sort of where I am now and I, I did want to share that because um, you know, I was drawn first to the issue um, of youth. We have, as you all know, um, the largest youth population on the planet ever, 1.8 billion people. And during my, you know, 25 plus years in development, I, I really saw this evolve in many different ways, whether I was in the field, but it was when I came back to Washington and, and I was in the policy uh, bureau and uh, we were working on different policies and as we were working on the first ever youth and development policy which just had its five-year anniversary I, I, I really became aware of um, that there wasn't enough evidence and data and yet we, it was like we saw this avalanche of young people across the planet which yeah, as we always say, it can be a dividend, but it also may not be a dividend. And what were we as the development leaders really doing in order to advance in this field? And it struck me after working on all these different strategies and policies in the Policy Bureau for three years that this was one of the hardest ones for us to do because there was just not enough evidence, data, um, and uh, you know, focus. And it reminded me of my the early days on democracy. I didn't tell the story of, um, you know, in 1994, after the fall of the Soviet Union, and we were developing the democracy-building field, um, and I could tell you some stories from Haiti and Nicaragua, but the point I want to make is I, I went to my boss and I said, you know, I don't, I'm, I'm thinking of going into this new field of um, the backstop, uh, which is now the backstop 76, right, but was the old, dem the democracy, going. he said, ah, don't do that, it's a fad. It's, you know, the fall of the Soviet Union has everyone thinking about democracy building, but it's not a real field. Stay in the program project development field and you'll become a mission director. And I remember, you know, thinking, a mission director? I don't 
care about that. I want to do what I'm passionate about. And uh, that seems so far off to me as a new, you know, newbie to USAID. And so I did follow, again, my gut. And so youth reminded me of that. As I was working on this with the team, uh, and we just actually did a five-year review of the policy, that there was so much work to do in this field. And I, at that moment, I really did. And then as I was traveling and I was obviously seeing a lot overseas um, in, from my perch in the policy bureau, but also as counselor, that there was so much to do. And that really drove me to think about seriously what I wanted to do with the next phase of my life. Um, you know. And so while I grew up in USAID, I knew um, I, I was ready to get closer to the field, the programs. And the International Youth Foundation, uh, I just returned from an event in Italy uh, on uh, youth development sponsored by Aspen Rockefeller. And it was interesting because they had the start of youth development, we, a timeline on the wall, and it started 1990 with the International Youth Foundation. And it, it is a truly remarkable foundation. Obviously, I take no credit for it because I've only just gotten there. But seeing the work that's been done over the last 27 years on positive youth development, and now seeing, and you're with FHI 360 and seeing around, like just how much it has grown, and um, uh, not, not just the field. So I think we're at the, um, thankfully, um, at a moment where the world is recognizing the importance of youth development and investing in youth development. And it, it reminds me of other periods that we saw on HIV AIDS, uh, where there has to be a call to action because we do not focus on these issues, whether it's youth unemployment, you know, youth agency, we will not achieve the sustainable development goals. We, we really will be putting the planet and our, our children's lives at risk. So as you can tell, I'm passionate about it. Um, and again, follow your passion. That makes it easy to wake up every day and just you know, get out on cold days and do what you do. Um, follow your passion, whatever it is. For me, it is youth development, and uh, being at the International Youth Foundation is just a great place. So, yeah. uh, one final question. Yeah. I'm mindful of everybody's time, and and so, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, thank you for that question because I think that I was really struggling with that as you heard early in my career. You, you try and, and measure impact and while we see the impact in our work in a very personal level with organizations we work with, with you know investments that we make, it's, it is that larger as we talk about the Gordian knot of scale. How do you achieve scale? And, and, um, and what, what really gets to scale and how do you do that? Um, so that, you know, I think was the struggle I was definitely feeling early on in my career and uh, midway through. Uh, and where I obviously saw it happen was in Colombia. Uh, the story I didn't tell, and Mike knows it because he helped us do it in Colombia when he was the head of DACA, was uh, we, you know, one of the things the Colombian government knew they had to do was to take back the territory, you know, recapture and ungoverned spaces, deliver services, get the the community really to understand and, and support 
obviously uh, being part of a legal society as opposed to an illegal society ruled by the FARC. That's not a, a, that's a pretty heavy task. And so while we were working on the demobilization, and I'll never forget, it was a couple days before Christmas, December, with the, the, the Colombian government, everyone was getting ready to leave, so I think I was in charge of the mission at that point. And we had all the maps out, and we talked about, like, where should we go in in an integrated, sequenced way, right, to really, you know, let's try and pilot. I, I don't like the term pilot, but let's try and test, and let's try and really get some evidence and data, like, can we, and then we can go to scale. So we went to the toughest territory in Colombia. The Colombian government asked to do this, the Macarena, the Meta region. Highest levels of coca growing, home of the FARC, three hours from Bogota. And I remember going back and telling the ambassador, like, okay, we just agreed to this integrated sequence program, USG, not USAID, USG resources, Colombian government resources. This is how it's going to work. And he thought I had, like, lost my mind. So you got to take risks, and then you got to put in place a plan. And we had a very elaborate plans developed and then measuring impact so that you can ultimately get to scale. That um, investment, that all of us and the private sector, non everybody key in that region and the way we did it, all of us collectively, scaled up to the larger Plan de Consolidacion, which you know, really helped lead to the FARC uh, you know, basically understanding these governed spaces are now encroaching on their territory and whatnot. So, but it's a long-term effort. So getting back just quickly to where I am now, and the point about youth development, but I think in anything we work on, it is all about evidence. Um, and I've seen that change so much in my 25 years in development that, you know, there was probably less, at different periods there were, there was a focus on evaluation and evidence, but right now, and because of technology and innovation, we're at such an exciting exciting, exciting time in development because not only having the evidence and, and the data and our access to data is so much easier than it used to be, right? Then how do you um, take these interventions that you have been able to test and you have the data and how do you scale them? And I see that right now happening in every, in so many sectors uh, and it gives me a, a great optimism that while we've made a lot of progress on the global indicators over the last 25 years, it's phenomenal. If we, obviously, you all know, and uh, yeah, I don't need to repeat the data to you, but, I, I, but it's not a guarantee as we talk about the global goals. We've got to really invest more. We've got to you know, really go with the data and the evidence and, and innovate and um, try, take risks and fail. Failure is actually... Uh, a very important thing in development. Uh, and I do fail fests all over the world because I think if we're not learning from failure, we're not learning and we're not innovating and we're not pushing ourselves hard enough. So I will stop there because Great. I know we're already over time. But thank well, you thank so you much, much for the Please opportunity. Join me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.